0: Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry and bread baking, to Italian studies, to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com.
1: I'm Aaron Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as co-host is Jenna Liute. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Welcome to the studio. So on last week's show, we talked about food labels and how they create confusion about health and the naturalness of products, and we basically learned that these kind of words usually don't actually mean much. But there's another kind of label that goes to how foods are made, which also taps into concerns about environmental sustainability and animal welfare issues. These are the cage-free, free-range, pasture-raised kind of labels. So what do these really mean, and how should consumers understand that kind of information? To help us dive into these topics today, our guests joining us are... Lori Bravenard, the Associate Director of the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems and an Associate Professor of Law at Vermont Law School, calling in from Vermont. Hi, Lori. Hi. And we also have Andrew Martin, an investigative reporter for Bloomberg News in New York, who recently wrote about animal welfare rating system that's used at Whole Foods and the challenge of sourcing enough, quote-unquote, sustainable products to meet consumer demand. Hi, Andrew.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me.
2: Welcome to both of you. Uh, So before we start talking about what these labels actually mean, I wanted to understand a little bit better where these labels and claims come from and the kind of information that's out there. Lori, can you tell us what do you see uh, around how animal welfare is marketed?
4: So it seems to me um, on animal product labels, animal welfare um, is becoming an increasing concern for consumers. There's been increasing pressure for manufacturers to do a better job of sort of taking care of their animals, whether it be that consumers are concerned about the welfare of the animals themselves or that it's that they 're concerned about how the treatment of the animals affects the final food product, so I think we 're starting to see manufacturers respond to those concerns by including more information um, devoted to animal welfare on meat packages
2: so twenty years ago like none of this was out there is there some kind of tipping point that catalyzed all of this Andrew? do you think there's something we can look at that got this conversation started
3: well i think some of it's happened at the state level there's been a number of referendums to push um you know to require um cage-free hens uh, california's uh most recently, um, you know, but I have to say, I think the animal rights groups have done a good job drawing attention to this issue and getting people engaged in it. And uh, I think producers have found that people are willing to spend a little bit more for it.
0: Um, can we uh, take a minute and get into some of these, some of these labels to sort of um, understand kind of what we're talking about here? So things like cage-free free range, humanely raised, sustainably raised, grass-fed, vegetarian fed, the list goes on. Um can can one of you kind of speak to what that actually means? What they mean?
3: I think sure. it depends largely and Laura she can talk very specifically about each one cuz she has this great website that does that, but <laughs> I think it depends, you know, which term you're talking about. I love the term humanely raised, right? Because that there's one that, that is totally open to interpretation. I would argue that probably 95% of the farmers in the United States believe their livestock are humanely raised, but the average consumer might look at it and think otherwise. So it's kind of a term like natural that's entirely meaningless and open to interpretation.
0: So there's, there's no regulation on, on using the term humanely raised. It's essentially a marketing term?
3: Yeah, all these terms have to be truthful, but, again, it gets at what is the truth to humanely raised. I'm not sure there is a truth. Now, there are some specific labels that Lori could talk about better than me that do have to meet certain definitions.
0: Lori?
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, For a lot of the terms that you just mentioned, like free-range, cage-free, humanely raised, for most of them there's no precise legal definition of what the term actually means. For some of them, like free range, if a producer wanted to include that particular terminology on the label, they would have to verify the claim with the USDA prior to inclusion on the label. Um, But that's sort of an outlier, and for the most part, many of these don't have to be verified with the agency before they're included on the label. So essentially, it's sort of up to the, the producer or manufacturer to decide what that term Means and provide some um, some information to the consumer about what that term means and how they're defining the term, but they aren't legally defined. So there's no specific set standard that the USDA has created for them to meet in order to be able to include that um, on their product labels.
3: So, so Lori, and correct me if I'm wrong. I know with cage-free, for instance, some states have specific requirements about uh, about what that means. Um, but the USDA doesn't have a specific definition. Although, if you want to use it on your label, you have to they have to verify that first. Is that right?
4: Yeah. So they haven't defined it. Um, if somebody wanted to say cage-free on their eggs or on their poultry, whatever the case may be. The USDA will allow them um, to use that term on the product, and there are certain requirements that they have to meet, so the, the poultry has to be able to freely roam either a building or a room or some enclosed area and have unlimited access to food and fresh water. Um, and the USDA will verify it if it meets those requirements, uh, but there's there are no additional requirements above and beyond that.
2: So, Lori, your Program oversaw the development or created this website that's called Labels Unwrapped, and it provides guidance to consumers about navigating all of this. And I I would love to hear from you how that came about and then also what the response has been to it.
4: Sure. Um, So it's funny how it came about, actually. Um, I teach a class at the law school called Food Regulation and Policy, and... Every year when we start talking about labels, it seems to be the one topic that students get really jazzed up about, Um, and I'm sure that comes from their role as consumers. They're probably a little bit different than the average consumer and more interested in their food because they're taking a food regulation course. Um, But I found myself every year adding more and more content on food labeling, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a website where people could go click around and figure out what specific terminology means on a label. And I had this really grandiose vision that you could walk through the aisle of a supermarket and pull off a product and click through the label. And that didn't, <laughs> that didn't quite happen with the website. Um, but we did. It was, a, it was a student-driven site in the, in the sense that um, I had a few students from my classes over the years help develop the content. And we then had a group of students at Dartmouth and the Dolly Lab actually put the site together. Um, I think the response has been good. I mean, there's, we have only approached sort of a segment, I think, of what consumers are interested in. And obviously, you could cover so much more content on a site like this. Um, but we hoped that we were covering sort of the major things that consumers see on labels and are really confused about.
2: So, one thing I'd love to actually talk about is the pictures on labels. So, those are the words. What about the pictures? Do they, is there any accountability around the kind of images, these bucolic scenes and the pastoralism that's often reflected um, in either cartoon images or actual pictures of farms? Is there legal liability that can attach to that if it's misleading?
4: That's a really good question. Um, I would assume yes. I don't know the answer to that. I know that in the context of kids and marketing food to kids, that's been a really big issue and being able to use cartoon characters to sort of induce parents um, through their kids into buying those products um, has been the subject of a lot of scrutiny and pushes for there to be much less of that. But I I don't think the inclusion of of bucolic images on products that are not necessarily coming from those settings are um, are inherently misleading. Um, and I think you, you could say the same thing about products that are coming from companies called like so-and-so farms, but it happens to be a huge CAFO. At the end of the day, it's still a farm um, in sort of like the most technical definition of what a farm might be and it's probably misleading to suggest that it's if it's coming from a farm it's coming from some small family farm that exists in this really bucolic beautiful setting um but i haven't seen and um you all may know more about this than me i haven't seen any specific action on the part of the agencies to try to to get imagery on labels um off if it's if it's pertaining to animals and and the meat products,
3: well, just uh, I, um, I I don't disagree with that at all. I think though that the in theory it is um, a problem if the the image on the label is misleading. Now whether or not the agency takes action on that is a different matter. So for instance, if you're selling um, eggs from a uh, um, from from hens that are in battery cages stacked eight high and the image on the front of the carton is of a hen pecking in a bucolic pasture. I think technically that's that's misleading and I think it could be challenged. I know I was talking to Temple Grand and um the um you know, who's a professor out in Colorado and and does a lot of animal welfare issues. And she brought up that example as one that a, a egg producer had a carton that showed a hen in a pasture, and she knew that wasn't the case. So she went to them and said, "If you don't take that off, I'm going to go to the USDA and make make them force you to take it off." And they did. But so, again, I don't know specifically if there's any if they've taken any action to that extent.
2: And it may not be an agency I mean, issue. It may also be like a consumer protection kind of lawsuit issue, which which somewhat brings yeah. us, Andrew, to the, to the article that you recently wrote about Whole Foods and their animal welfare rating system, um, which has now been the subject of a lawsuit filed by PETA on the basis that it's misleading. So can you tell us about your article and... Yeah, sure. So, the you
3: know, PETA... Um Uh, You know, PETA obviously um, does a lot of uh, well, not obviously, but PETA PETA does a lot of undercover investigations at livestock facilities. And you know, for anyone that's experienced some of these videos, they could be really awful, and they tend to go to big, giant ones and find workers torturing. Uh, uh, or mistreating pigs and chickens and all sorts of things um, and it 's been very effective in in forcing change uh, of specific producers and even prompting some uh, charges of animal cruelty um, uh, against producers. What was interesting to me about this one was it was whole foods and um, their uh, initial pitch to me was you know they have these they 've come up with this animal welfare system and and you know what they 're purporting to be isn 't actually the case and They had some undercover video from a farm in Pennsylvania that by PETA standards wasn 't so bad, but it certainly seemed to violate the spirit if not some of the specific requirements of whole food standards to me what was what was more- intre- i mean uh, i don 't want to get into who was right and who is wrong, but to me, what was most interesting about this was was the the sort of what the perception of animal welfare is in consumers mind versus what the reality of it is um, in a system like whole foods i mean i I think um, what, when people think of humanely raised um, they think of of uh, of uh, you know bucolic uh, dairies in Vermont, where the um, dairy cows and the hens are are munching on clover all day. And Whole food System um, isn't that. I mean, it, it's a system that. Uh, uh, it has some of that, but but really, what it is is a system to try to improve um, larger facilities, um, and and even under their definition of humane, you know, larger facilities can be what some people call CAFOs. They just have to be functioning in a slightly better way than most do, right. and, so and that to this me really is interesting. Yeah, it gets um, to because, the. Uh, uh, it, I'm sorry, it, go it gets ahead.
2: to the. I mean, this gets to the kind of gulf between. The reality, what's in consumers' mind, and the reality of agriculture and, and supply, which I want to talk about more after the break. Um, but before, I just do want to follow up to say, as as you said, um, there is a kind of Whole Foods has come back, and and some other animal welfare organizations, at least the humane societies, come to their defense, saying, you know, the the lawsuit by PETA. Really raises questions given that Whole Foods has done more to advance animal welfare and agriculture than any other major retailer. Um, So we'll take a short break and we'll come back and, and talk more about those issues.
1: a magic wand tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious the planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us both our bodies and our our world but man I do not have a magic wand what I do have is you and this radio station the heritage radio network that's what we're here to do We're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the plan is healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you.
2: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're talking about food labels, and particularly those labels that go to animal welfare and what we can what we can understand from the words on a package about animal welfare. So we were just talking about Whole Foods, and their pretty well-known animal welfare rating system, which has now come under some scrutiny because of a lawsuit by PETA. But Lori, I wanted to ask you, Whole Foods is actually pretty unusual in that they are Doing this work at, at the retailer level and trying to certify um, and assure consumers about different levels of animal welfare. When you buy from specific producers as opposed to retailers, and the specific producers are making claims, what are the kind of certification mechanisms that they are using?
4: That Whole Foods is using, in particular,
2: or others. You know, if it's Applegate or um, you know any of the any of the brands that are out there saying sustainably raised and they have some kind of checking system, you know, you've explained that in general regulations might not be in place or enforcement agencies may not be checking. What is the typical kind of reporting and accountability that might be required?
4: So that that would sort of fall to Whole Foods to do their own independent verification and make sure that the producers are meeting the standards that they say that they're actually meeting. Um, in the absence of any sort of federal regulations that define the terms that Whole Foods is um, allowing them to put on their labels or that Whole Foods is making about the labels. And I think ultimately what winds up happening in a lot of these situations is unless Whole Foods or whatever, um, whatever retailer you're talking about has a really stringent program in place, often they're not verifying that producers are meeting those standards, and you wind up with these sort of exposés about, like, oh, such and such retailer is selling meat and claiming that the meat um, meets X, Y, and Z standards, but it turns out when you do an inspection of the production facilities that they're actually not meeting those standards. So I think if consumers are going to trust those standards, ultimately they have to trust that the retailers are... Um, verifying those standards in a way that is ensuring the accuracy of the claims. And given the fact that we've seen so many examples of retailers sort of not not doing a good enough job at making sure that those, those claims are accurate, um, I think consumers are a little bit wary about those types of verifications um, and would probably rather there be some sort of regulatory body that's ensuring the veracity or the accuracy of those claims.
0: Lori, why, why aren't there federal standards regulating these kinds of practices, in your opinion?
4: That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I don't know, honestly. I think part of the difficulty is once you have a regulation for a specific claim, if manufacturers want to figure out a different way to market their product and not have to meet the regulation, then they'll figure out a different claim to put on the product. I mean, we've seen so many different examples. The USDA, so one thing I think most consumers don't know is that the FDA regulates most food products, but the USDA regulates the claims that are on meat and poultry. And Hmm. the USDA has actually adopted a definition of natural. So because there's a definition of natural, meat producers, I think, in response to that, have started to figure out clever ways that they can market their products that may if they don't meet that definition of natural, they figured out another way that they can market their product to sort of meet that same consumer perception of what they think natural actually means.
2: But Andrew, yes, exactly, wholesome (laughs) and pure. Um, fresh. Andrew, I know that in your piece, you actually talked about the skepticism that Lori just alluded to of consumers, or you quoted, I think, a marketing uh, research executive who said that a lot of consumers are, are already over this. Um you know what did what was he saying and and if consumers are so skeptical why do the labels proliferate so much
3: Yeah well I mean I think some of the labels have been very successful uh, I mean there's you know antibiotic free meat for instance is is uh, or, or it's actually meat from animals raised without antibiotics is the correct way they say it but um, you know some of it's successful Uh, the the sales of that meat's going up and I think um, everyone's trying to jump on that bandwagon I think his point was that there's been such a proliferation of them that they're losing some of their power and tend to be confusing and um, I was telling Lori before we got on that I I went shopping recently specifically to find some of the most outrageous labels or the most sort of the packages Most festooned with labels. And I mean, some of them have, you know, a dozen different claims on them. And, um, uh, you know, there's uh, Annie's grass fed, organic, R- uh, RBGH free, GMO free mac and cheese, you know, and, and that's just the start of it. And so, um, at some point, I think I think his the point he was trying to make is at some point it's it's overwhelming and it and, and it loses its its potency.
0: So if if um, not all of these if these labels are not seen as, as super meaningful right now, um, I mean I, I I do think that you can say that they are um, this labeling trend in general can um, serve as an indication of change in the in the food system right we've heard, we've um, heard of a number of examples of this happening recently mm-hmm. um, McDonald's, for instance, their announcement they're moving towards uh, all cage free eggs and Andrew you alluded um, at the start of the show to a number of states um, kind of putting forward a number of bills and measures uh, to regulate um, this sort of activity. So I guess I'm curious to hear from both of you um, what your perspective is on the relationship between labeling and and, um, real change in the industry. So, you know, yeah, industry action and policy change. What is the tension between the two?
4: I mean, I think to a certain degree, the label claims that are accurate, like antibiotic-free, there's a very specific requirement that goes along with that. And there's been a real push by consumers and advocates to have meat produced without the use of antibiotics, both from an animal health perspective and from a human health perspective. And so I think, to a certain extent, there are, that label claim um, was driven by some real change in the food system. I think Overall, though, there's a real push from consumers right now for better production methods, whether you're talking about uh, meat or other products. And I'd like to say that I think that that's driving real change in food production. I think as a first matter, it's driving changes um, in terms of labeling language. And the more consumer lawsuits we see to try to expose the inaccuracy of those claims or that those claims are deceptive, then maybe we'll start to see producers and manufacturers actually changing their production practices. But it seems to me like the labeling, the language on the labels is sort of a first step in trying to address those consumer concerns for different production methods and um, that there hasn't been a tremendous shift in production, but that it ultimately maybe that will happen as these claims start to get litigated more and there's more sort of media around the deceptiveness of the of the label claims.
2: Well, let's talk about that as a as an option. So, Andrew, that's kind of another issue that your piece really went to was this issue of the challenges in supply and the reality, the gulf between the reality of the kind of meat that's out there that sustainable consumers want to access that's being produced in a way that I guess conscientious consumers want to buy it and um, the availability of that. And in whole foods, I think that uh, it's something less than 20% of the meat that can meet their step five level, which is the more ideal slaughtered on site. Yeah. Yeah. So what, you know, is, um, is there a viable path to, lifting all of the animal production in the country to a higher standard that would meet where, where consumers seem to be going
3: well I, I think the tension here is 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 how do you do this at scale and i think mm-hmm. that's what that 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 story about the PETA lawsuit showed um, because that farmer originally was a bucolic pasture-raised farm that when they when they started getting more and more business couldn't sustain that and I think I think that's true for a lot of these these claims going forward Um, I I do think to Lori's point I do think there has been changes it has forced changes in the industry um, on antibiotics and on cages, for instance, that's a big change. But I think at scale, it's going to be more difficult to do some of the, the additional changes at, at scale um, uh, unless the costs go way up. And I'm not sure, I guess at one point, it's going to be how much your consumers willing willing to pay. Um, but it's one thing to, to take away the, the cages of hens and raise them in big, you know, still in big sort of factory farm-style barns, um, and it's another to have them all out on pasture. Um, uh, and, and the gulf between those is still very wide. I mean, that's just not happening very much.
0: Andrew, um, I'm curious your take on on how you would interpret the rise of um, some of these quote-unquote big food companies purchasing smaller brands like Applegate, Nyman Ranch. We, we just learned in the past few months that both Hormel and, and Purdue have purchased these respectively. Um, and what do you think these repercu- you know, re- repercussions would be of these types of companies buying these smaller brands that sort of pride themselves on responsibly raised, uh, producing responsibly raised animal products? Well, looking at
3: it in the best light, you know, I think um, uh, if you take it at face value, you'd say, well, um, Purdue, um, which is, uh, you know, old school, uh, you know, traditional factory farm type chicken company that used all the available technology including antibiotics or whatever to raise their chickens over the years is now seeing a different path and that this small company will and you know they've announced they want to go antibiotic free or they're moving in that direction um, is having a great influence on them. They've seen um, you know the way that uh, Jim Perdue describes it he's seen um, uh, from their purchase of, of Coleman meats I think it's called that that this can be done at scale and so he wants to move in that direction because because that's that's the way uh, consumers are heading, and that's true. I mean, the, the the cynical side is that you know some of these big companies are buying these to get the sort of green halo um, from the companies without actually doing the work that's required to uh, to. to uh, uh, to live up to those the, the standards. But uh, I, I think in Purdue's case, I do think um, that in, in particularly with chicken, that's the way consumers are moving, that's the way fast food restaurants are moving, and he's trying to get ahead of it.
2: So, in short, it seems, Or, and I took a look at your website, Lori, to, as well, I mean, it sounds like there isn't a lot that consumers can really count on in, based on the language that's out there if they're really looking for something that Meets more the bucolic ideal, we'll call it, instead of calling it humanely raised. Um, so, what you know, what do you suggest that they do? <laughs> what, do you, what what's your advice to consumers who are trying to navigate all of this? <laughs>
4: yeah I mean, I think there there's so many things that I think could change. I mean, you could the fact that the USDA and the FDA sort of regulate differently and that the USDA has defined some terms that the FDA has chosen not to define if there was consistency across the agencies, I think that that would be uh, a positive step in the right direction. One thing that I've always thought would be really useful on a label for consumers to see is to be able to parse out the stuff that's mandatory or has some sort of uh, regulatory authority behind it, like that it's been pre-approved in some way by the agency versus the claims that are just there voluntarily by the manufacturer. So if you could think of a way to sort of like color code those and then educate consumers about the difference between the two, I think that that would be really useful um, now I think we're starting to see a proliferation of all these different sort of like independent third-party verifier services like the non-GMO project or in the case of um, animal products, animal welfare approved, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for the people who are super the, – the consumers who are super conscientious about the meat that they're buying – Um, They take it upon themselves to research what those organizations are doing in terms of certifying the animal welfare standards and then look for those seals on specific products. Um, But at the end of the day, I think it's a tremendous amount. You're expecting a tremendous amount from consumers. Um, And unfortunately, I think that's just the system that we have, that consumers need to educate themselves about the labels and decide what's important to them and then figure out how to get that information, whether it be through um, an animal welfare approved label certification or whether it be through other claims that are verified by the USDA.
2: Yeah, that issue of how much you're expecting from consumers is really a tough one. I have, I I might be that kind of consumer and I am, but then when I sometimes try and give advice to someone say in my family will buy this or buy that brand, I, there's, you know, it, Is there anything we can say that's like a simple synthesis of this? Even sometimes I find out a brand is just not doing what it turned out. that they're doing
4: besides
0: besides telling everyone to go to labels unwrapped which might be my my (laughs) my next advice (laughs) for everybody yeah blanket advice (laughs) um
4: i mean i think you could say to consumers like buy organic but that's not going to meet i mean the organic standards for meat production aren't amazing and they're not from an animal welfare perspective well what about uh, farmers
0: markets Lori? what about you know suggesting that you go talk to your local farmer at, at, you know. I think
4: that that's great. I mean, if people have that option, I know, and I am reluctant to suggest that because I know we're really lucky in Vermont that we can go say to our local farmer, like, what's this meat? What's your What are your production practices? I can do that down the street from my house. Um but I don't know that everybody has the ability to do that in the country. No. And mm-hmm. and if you went to your to your butcher or the guy at the meat counter at, like, Walmart or wherever you're getting your groceries from, I doubt that they would have very much information about the meat that they're selling. Maybe, um, maybe that's getting more sophisticated. But I think unless they're going to a specialized store like Whole Foods or a place like that, um, that they, they probably aren't able to get a lot of information about the products they're buying.
3: So, I mean, I think one of the problems, though, is that, um, Laurie alluded to this, I mean, the, the, the question is, what's important to who you're talking to, right? I mean, some people may want mm-hmm. organic, or some people might want animal welfare, but most people want a little bit of everything. Yeah. You know, so that's why it's hard. Um, because some 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 brands are good on one thing and it 's unclear on the others, or you, you know so that's that 's I think where it gets tricky there 's not an easy sort of shorthand to say this is good or that 's bad
4: and partially, I feel like that 's why you see so many different claims on the label, like the the example of the annie 's mac and cheese if it says that it 's organic then it 's also r b s t free but People may not make those associations, so they want to make sure that they, like, hit every sort of point that a consumer might be concerned about. So, like, it's organic, so you can check off the organic box. It's also RBST-free, so you can check off that box. And, like, they're trying to appeal to all those different segments of the consumer population. I think that's partly why we see so many different label claims that wind up being almost redundant in some instances. Um, because one claim covers all the rest of those, but
0: <clears throat> people don't it's really, really know hard what that means. Consumers yeah, or have different means. perspectives.
2: But to some extent, I think that the labeling has actually illuminated where mainstream agriculture really is. Because when you start to see the need for a label that says cage-free or pasture-raised or these various kinds of claims, they're differentiating from something. And um, I mean mm-hmm. to. As a last question, to what extent do you think people realize that, that the broader, what that means, the broader picture is?
4: So you mean, like, does the average consumer realize that? Like, moving in the, that yeah, the like moving in the sort of agricultural system that we have is not raising animals on pasture or without cages. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it is highlighting that to consumers. I think consumers start to wonder if you see a package that has all these claims on it, and then you see a package that doesn't, you <laughs> wonder, like, well, what's wrong what's with that on? one? What's going on, yeah. And why, why doesn't that have all those claims? And, like, whether they're meaningful or not, I know family members of my own, when you talk about trying to sort of, like, coach family members, telling me that they bought eggs that had all these claims on them. And I'm like, oh, you should have just bought the regular ones because you basically <laughs> paid for nothing. Um, but I do think it's illuminating to consumers. I don't know that they know necessarily like, what it's illuminating to them or that they know the nuance of it. But I certainly think that it is highlighting that there are very different modes of agricultural and food production.
2: Well, I think uh, it's a complicated topic makes for complicated shopping, but I thank both of our guests for sharing their perspectives and expertise with us. We're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you again, both Andrew Martin and Lori. Lori, tell me how you pronounce your last name. A band. Okay, thank you, because I had a feeling I didn't say that correctly Common outset. spelling. <laughs>
4: Thanks so, for having us. Thank you
2: so much to both of you. Um, our show co-producer is Jenna Liud, who also joined me as co-host today. Our intern is Austin Brunyarski. Show music by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter at Eat, Eat Matters HRN. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you all for listening.
3: Father wolf at times
2: I walk the dog and talk to God.
1: Everything looks so long. Sundays we saw both.
0: Mother made me ball. Thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio network.org.